G'day, I'm James Baldwin and welcome to another episode of Lakeside Drive's F1 podcast. In this episode, we chat with Richard Saxby. Richard is McLaren Applied's head of motorsport accounts. He has a total of 10 Constructors World Championships under his belt, has worked with drivers such as Fernando Alonso, Lewis Hamilton, David Coulthard, Nico Rosberg, Roman Grosjean, Valtteri Bottas, Mark Webber, and many, many more. With so many stories to share from his time in the Formula One paddock over the last 22 years, I can tell you that it was a real pleasure to catch up with Richard, and I know that you will love his stories. So let's get into it. Well, Richard, you come to us with an enormous amount of Formula One knowledge, experience, passion, and constructors' championships, <laughs> 10 in whole, including last year. Uh, an incredible, incredible feat, a resume that pretty much everyone in the paddock, I'm sure, would be very, very envious of. But more importantly, you're holidaying in the correct part of the world. You're in Australia at the moment. Uh, it's so great to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And thanks for that, sir. Uh... That intro, I guess, uh, yeah. When you put it into perspective, it's it, it, it is it is a great achievement for for a lot of people, not just myself. But um, but yeah, I'm in I'm in Australia. My my uh, my father's Australian, and my, a lot of my friends who who are here um, on the Gold Coast. So I come over to see those. I'm pretty much here. And when I was racing, when I was trackside. Uh, it was twice a year. You know, I'd come over for the, for the Grand Prix, spend a week here, and then fly up to Malaysia. And then come back in October and come and see the folks and uh, and all my friends again here. Oh, and then I used to do the um, I used to do the indie and surfers a lot because a lot of yeah. my friends who were racing V8s also had a lot of friends racing in kart at the time, you know. So uh, Will Power was a good good buddy of mine. Um, wow. you know, back in the day, and he um, he was racing kart, and then of course we had. Davison's and Courtney's in uh, in the V8, so it was a good catch up weekend. Goodness me! Very yes, good well, catch up weekend. that that messy. is very exciting, and glad that uh, we can call you an Australian uh, at least from the dad's side by birth. Happy to do that. We uh, on the podcast we cling to Valtteri Bottas is an Australian because he's dating uh, Tiffany Cromwell. So yeah. happy happy to do that. Well, Richard, let's amazing, let's go back to athlete. your let's go back to your beginning, shall we? Talk yeah. to us about your early life leading into motorsport where did you grow up and what did you study so I, I i grew up in the north of england and then we my father was an engineer and it took him down took him down south so i ended up coming right away down south from from yorkshire uh right the way down to to kent and uh you know i'd always had an interest in 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 motorsports my father being an engineer he always had an interest in anything that moved and <laughs> turned and we, we moved fairly close to brands hatch and, you know, when the weekend was was okay and the weather was good, we'd, we'd, dad would take me up to Brands. And I think that's what started my sort of love affair for for, for race cars. Although I, I never considered myself to really want to get into the driving side of things. And I guess it was never encouraged because it's it still, even back then, it was always considered, a, a you know, an expensive uh, sport. But I, I was never particularly any good at driving, I don't think, in, you know, even in my sort of late teens. So I'm lucky I didn't go down that path. But I, I started getting into the radio control cars, you know, and I think Lewis does that a bit as well. Mm, um, mm. So I started getting into a bit of that, and I started learning about setup, and I started looking about, learning about camber and and you know tire changes and tires and all that sort of stuff, and and it was cool, it was cool. And um, but you know the 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 sort of um, 
you know, I used to sit there on the TV and 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 watch the 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 pit lane and think, well, where do these guys? How do these guys get into this pit lane? How do they get there? You know, what, you know, at the time there wasn't much. There wasn't much. You know, certainly wasn't internet or anything like that, and you couldn't you couldn't do any research, and you know, certainly wasn't as easy as it. I'm not saying it's easy to get in there, but it, it you know, certainly wasn't easy to uh, to to research. Mm. So I I went to university uh, it, again in Canterbury in Kent. And I sort of moved away from the mechanical side of things and sort of got into electronics. And this was about 1996, 95, 96. And then did the digital age was just beginning. You know, we had Windows 95 and everything was kicking off. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> you, you had all that. You had, you had digital uh, mobiles. I mean, before that, there was analog mobiles, right? So I ended up doing um, digital electronics, with a, with a bit of medical science on the side because I wanted to get into what's called sensors and and and, and monitoring and all that sort of stuff and I, the, the the digital age was dawning so I never for once thought I'd put that to the automotive industry but I did that degree and did four years of that and it was great fun um, and at the end of it. I was looking to sort of go into the medical industry using all this electronics and systems to, to monitor athletes, right? So you imagine you're an athlete, you're on the running machine and you get stuff stuck all over you and you'd measure your, you know, your flow rate, you'd measure your, your heartbeat, you'd measure your lung capacity, you'd have a mask on, you know, you know, it, you know it's just like something out of, you know, Gattaca and you know, they're running on the old thing there. And, and so I, I sort of, was expecting to go into that field. And what came along though was I was reading Autosport one, one weekend and, uh, and, and they had a jobs page back then. They had a jobs page and in there it said sort of junior engineer. Please write to us with your CV. So I thought, well, you know, give it, give it a go. And I wrote to her. Uh, I wrote to a, a lovely lady called Kerry and she was excellent. And she said, look, she wrote back to me and I got this, this letter headed from Stuart Grand Prix. Oh. And uh, I was sort of, I'm in an hour and about jobs. I think I was doing interviews at Sony Music as well then for some weird reason. Wow. Yeah, that was cool. That was about making uh, outside uh, broadcast vehicles. So I'd, I'd um, sort of diversified away from maybe medical electronics then because it was such a small field and you sort of, you know, just spread your wings. And um, this, this lady said, look, we don't have the junior engineer position available for you, uh, but we do have a graduate R and D engineer available position. Would you like to come and uh, interview for it? And I did went up to Milton Keynes, uh, Stuart Grand Prix interviewed by a guy called Malcolm Tierney. And before it even really got back in the car, <clears throat> my, um, my, uh, I think I had a, a Nokia banana phone rang <laughs> and uh, I felt, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, Matrix. And sure enough, Perry <laughs> said, uh, would you mind coming back in? And I went, yeah, where are you? I'm just outside. Um, uh, um, so I, got, I, got, I walked back in and, and they sort of, yeah, offered me position of a junior, sort of a junior R&D engineer. And really that time the company didn't really have much R&D I mean, mm. it was just myself, this other guy called Carl Willoughby, uh, and um, uh, an ex-mechanic called Simon Adams, who's still there. He's been there for like 30 years. But yeah, and that was the R&D department. And basically what we had to do was, so so they, they asked, people ask me, well, how did I get the job? Well, I did this thing where I said, oh, you know, um, 
I think a Formula One car is like a, an athlete on a running machine, right? So it measures loads, it measures pressure, it measures um, uh, flow rates, it measures, you know, you know, it's got a, it's got a, it's got it's got a heart, uh, the engine, it's got a, it's got a brain, the ECU. And it's got, you know, extremities like suspension. It's got, you know, and of course I was doing all these analogies, not thinking that I was going to go anywhere with it. And <laughs> they really saw a relationship mm. with, 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 with what I was doing to what the car needed to determine where the performance was required. Right. So, um, yeah, that's how I got the job there. Uh, so- I think. So would you say that you were part of that technical computer revolution of the sport, which maybe ruined it from what it used to be, or it was more mechanical setups to the computer side of it, which we love because it does obviously makes the cars ten times faster than what they were. But (laughs) well, funny enough, you know, later on in my career, that all went out the window. But uh, uh, yeah, I think I were. You know, (laughs) we, we we had to determine. You know, we had to sort of. You know figure out what sensors we needed to to uh, to determine where the performance was in the car. So there was all sorts of sensors you'd sort of stick over the car and then have to harness looms to them and then figure out what sort of logging rate you needed. And, and um, yeah, uh, that, that, you know, that's how it was. And as, as technology moved on, sensors become much more, you know, advanced. They become wireless or they became infrared and you could look at tyres as they were moving around and figure out what sort of, what sort of temperature they were doing. And then it moved on again to internal pressure of tires and all this other stuff. We even started monitoring the driver. We put accelerometers inside their earpieces. So they, they wow. knew when they were, they, you know, when they had a hard, uh, when they had a hard shunt you know, in the bazers. Um, so uh, then there was all sorts of other things like formula one Marshall system came along, um, which is what you see, you know, with the, the marshalling system now. So you've got, um, you got quite a uh, yeah, a bit of a revolution back then. It was ninety nine, so two thousand. It became so Ford Jaguar. Ford bought from Stuart Grand Prix, and we we became we became Jaguar, and that was that was pretty crap. Um, I mean, mm. I I think I spoke to Jackie Stewart about two years ago at the Silverstone Classic, and I said to him, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, this, that, and the other." He goes, "Yeah, Jesus Christ, what a load of crap that ended up being." Didn't it? So Jaguar, unfortunately, was um, yeah, it was it was sort of siloed, um, and we we I think we struggled to ask for external help because you had to use Ford, right? Mm. And these guys hadn't wouldn't even know what a Formula One car looked like, and and I, I think I can even quote, I think one of the Ford Edsel Ford the third or whatever he was, he just asked. Who the who the hell is this Eddie Irvine? You know, because he was the second highest paid man in Ford, right? And they didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know what it was all about. Anyway, we went through numerous, like loads and loads of you know MDs and uh, uh, technical directors from Gary Anderson to Steve Nicholson to all, all these sort of you know you know pretty respected people, but they they mm. were never able to pull the the ship together. And consequently, you know, we had really good drivers like like Mark Webber. You know, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put my neck out. You know, and I've known Mark. You know, we we were on nodding terms technically, but yeah, he's <laughs> he's a really nice guy. Um, he he came along and he you know he really wrung the potential out of that last couple of cars that we had really right on the limit. 
and uh, you know it got it got a couple of I think it got a couple of decent you know laps. I think it split the Ferraris in Malaysia once in two thousand four. Maybe pole positions. I don't think we had pole. Did we get pole? I don't think. No, no, definitely yeah, not. Yeah, didn't, that was, didn't, no. he shit, didn't he shit the bed on a start on the front row? It might not have been pole. It might have been second. I think he was yeah. second. He split the Ferraris. Yeah, I think he was right. on the front row. Yep. But yeah, went backwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just but then, of course, Red Bull came along. And mm. So I, this is an interesting part for me, Richard, because yeah. I think you've, you've gone from Stewart Grand Prix, which, as I said, Jackie Stewart, absolute mega name of the sport, yeah. to yeah. Yeah. Ford buying them out under the Jaguar banner. I mean, Jaguar had yeah. a version of success compared to Stewart, it has to be fair, although maybe with the, the shift, the technological shift, that was just likely to happen anyway. But yeah. I just want to go back a little bit before we, we go into Red Bull because I'm interested to know what it was like for you as a graduate engineer in your first race weekend. Can you remember what you felt like, what the, the vibe was in the team, how you were accepted and what you what you sort of did for your first yeah. Grand Prix? Yeah, I, I can actually. I went to my first I went to my first Grand Prix uh, because this is this is an interesting reason of why I ended up going to my first Grand Prix. So there was two race engineers. And there was two performance engineers, or like junior race engineers, that were just basically ran out of the pit wall with some paper with some download figures on, really. And they were sit there crunching data. And both of those guys basically left at the same time, like up to left, and didn't even go to the race, you know, didn't even turn up. Wow. And we don't know why. Still this day, we don't know why. There was obviously some sort of internal politics. And of course, they they'd phoned around all the departments, and these teams weren't as big as what you you have now. I mean, you're talking about you know, less than two hundred people. And they said, uh, "Right, Rich, go and grab a laptop from from IT and um, get yourself out there." And we went to. I think we did uh, first race was Nurburgring. I think we did a, a Lursi Levis straight line test beforehand to sort of get me used to what was going on with the engineer called Simon Smart. Um, he was a great bloke. He taught me a lot and he, yeah, I mean that, that, I mean, I think I was, I was actually called mustard. I think it was either cause you like me or you hate me or, or, <laughs> or, or I was keen. I was keen. So yes, there you go. Yeah. So that's that's probably a better. Yeah. Now who was the, who was the chief mechanic at the time? I mean, there was, there was a couple of characters, you know, um, uh, Darren was chief mechanic at the time and, Oh, crikey. Yeah, name, names. But, uh, yeah, who was driving for us? Who was doing the, the straight line then? I think it was uh, Della Rossa, I think, was the first. I think he was doing a straight line test. But anyway, yeah, there was a, there was a couple of drops. We, we went through quite a few drivers back then. But, yeah, I remember, you know, and I remember the garage door lifting up and seeing the red line that said pit lane. And then remembering that thing that I said to you earlier is how do those people get into the garage? How do those people get into pit lane? And that was that's all that'll always stay with me. That'll always stay with me. And and literally, I wanted to be there in the morning when the garage doors went up for some weird reason, you know, some some sort of you know. Um, and and I did it, and I remember seeing it, and you know that followed me all the way through through my career, and and sort of you know I didn't always stay on the race team on the race team at Jaguar. I'd end up going back into the into the factory uh, when they got you know some decent people, uh, certainly better than myself. Um, and you know this was a this was a team in a bit of disarray, 
you know, Jaguar was in a bit of a disarray and there was lots of changes in, in engineering, lots of changes, like I said to you before, in managing directorship and technical directorship. Um, there was lots of infighting around aero, um, what should be in the aero map, what shouldn't be in the aero map. Um, you know, we had some we had some people from Ford who took the wrong direction on the suspension and there was just so many different things going on. There wasn't there wasn't the reliability. You know, we 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 talked earlier before the podcast started about uh, JC, an Australian James Courtney, Australian test driver. You know, he 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 suffered a big shunt at, uh, at Monza, and I, I I was there, and you know uh, you know there was something that failed, and uh, at Lesmos one and two, he he you know he took a big like twenty nine G, maybe twenty five G, something like that. It was it was big enough to knock out his left hand side. I think it was his left-hand side of his body that that wouldn't necessarily work properly. Um, so so there's, there was things like that, that, you know, and you could sort of see Jaguar was in a bit of a disarray. And there were three silos with Jaguar. There was Jaguar Racing, there was Pi Electronics, and there was Cosworth. And they were all from the same company, right? They all form, formed this premier performance group, um, which was all under the Ford banner. Um but they were treated like completely separate companies. So there was never that intended join up, right? You look at Mercedes now, Mercedes AMG and HP, it is so seamless. Even though like 30, 40 miles away from each other, they are so well integrated. Um, you know, and you need to make, and Ferrari, of course, they're very well integrated. Uh, but at Jaguar, there's just us and them. And then there was a third party involved with Jaguar because there was this Pi Electronics group who would make all the electronics and so on and so forth. Um, very similar to what McLaren applied are now. So, yeah, that's that's where we're at with 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 with, with Jaguar. I mean, you know, yeah, I was, strange enough, I was, I was always, I was always there for some big shunts. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> last memorable. test I ever, yeah, the last test I ever did was Pascal. No, no um, oh crikey, you have to come up with a test test driver. He was rubbish. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Plenty of those around. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, I don't think you've erased him or tested for us. Um, oh, he was Dutch fella. I think he won Formula Three Thousand actually. Anyway, uh, first lap, we kept telling him about brakes. We kept on telling him about tyres. It was a bit, it was a bit damp. And he exited the last corner coming down the main straight at Silverstone and went straight into the wall and literally rolled the car over two or three times. And, and I was oh. the first one, I think VAR were testing at the time, and I was the first one over the pit wall and I ran to him and... I actually didn't give a crap about the driver. All I wanted to do was make sure he didn't throw the steering wheel out of the car. Because <laughs> <laughs> the reason oh. why I was at the test, the reason why I was at the test is because we were testing a new steering wheel. Oh, yeah. And uh, the first thing I did was like, hand me, hand me the wheel, mate. That's it. I'm trying to get him out. You know, he, yeah. You know. Did you walk off with the wheel in your hand? Well, look, let's yeah. hope that you're not the bad luck omen for crashes, hey? Is there? Yeah. A, well, I did. I did have a good sniff around, see if there was any petrol, you know. But I couldn't smell it, and so he was all right. Is there a sense that you guys, the designers and the engineers, is there a sense that they are your cars and not the drivers? The drivers just pilot them, but you have the ownership of them yeah. ultimately. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. And you can see that on the faces of 
of firstly you know there there is obviously a human element to you know is the driver okay of course there is yeah um but then the realization realization that you're going to do an all-nighter soon kicks in and you know <laughs> and then you're like you know bugging and then you think ah oh, crap and then whether or not we've got the spares the parts whether or not the factory can get the stuff out to us all this sort of stuff gets, starts going through an engineer and mechanics head you know what have we lost in terms of prime parts or experimental parts that we needed to put mileage on. You know, there's so many people involved in the shunt, huge amount of people involved in the shunt. Just the other day, um, got an email from McLaren Reply, got an email from, from Haas saying, you know, we need to make sure that is this, 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 and this going to be all right? And I'm like saying, after that shunt, you know, I wouldn't even bother testing it. But, you know, they're so up against it in terms of cost and 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 trying to recoup some of the losses during accidents. You've got to make sure the stuff's fit for good, for good racing purposes. But, yeah, you get that all the time. I mean, yes, it is your car, um, especially on the race team, because you put it together. You put your blood, sweat, and tears, you know. You put everything you possibly could into it. Um, in setting it up and you know that's what you're there to do and then of course it hits the buzzers you know firstly you obviously think you know have i done something wrong have i not put a you know done a nut up or have i not you know all this sort of thing starts going through your head you know will they find an issue with something that i've done or a corner that i've worked on so it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting point but yeah you spoke yeah. a little bit about red bull and let's mm. let's go there now because mm. To me, and I think in retrospect, it's quite fantastically brilliant. Maybe not so much what happened at the end of last year, but quite fantastically brilliant for you being there at the birth of Red Bull Racing and yeah. uh, just departing Mercedes ahead of what happened at the end of, of last year. But, of course, this yeah. is the first time that an energy drink had become a team. You've come from a name of Formula yeah. One in Stewart to a brand with, yes, Ford and Jaguar and then Red Bull. What was it? Like, what was that that whole shift like? Because you said the shift from Stewart to Ford wasn't that great, um, but you've got Dietrich and, and all the players involved with with trying to set this up and Christian, of course, as well. What was the yeah. attitude? Because obviously DC was there as well, so they've they've got him out of a, a pretty poorly performing McLaren into into this Red Bull. It must have been pretty electric compared to the the first change in teams that you'd gone through. I mean, all we could think about is like, there's going to be some serious Red Bull parties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of course there was, you know, there was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what did we think? I think it's a fizzy drink team. You know, we still call it the fizzy drink team, um, uh, even though they're actually a very powerful engineering company now. Yeah. Um, the fizzy drinks team uh, was... It was a. It was good. It was. It was great, actually. I mean, there was this. There was this departure from Ford, which I don't think any of us really were fussed about, to be honest. And we, you know, we all knew how uh, Dietrich's match sits, and 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 the whole program came along. I mean, you've seen Red Bull in Formula One for you know fifteen years before that on yeah. the on the you know on the um, on the Sauber. You know, and and of course you could see Red Bull in in Formula Three and Formula Three Thousand and and bringing all these teams. You know, so we were pretty excited about this whole this whole. I think we were so excited we painted the car to look like a can, and <laughs> and uh, and they got the marketing team got an absolute roasting for it from Red Bull, absolutely roasting. They said there's no way our car's going to look like a can of fizzy drink. And they did this whole silver and blue thing, right? You know, yeah. all the way down, looked, looked at them. 
But anyway, you'll see it. So I think it's the Jaguar R5 that they painted up as it. But, but yeah, anyway, it, it, it didn't end up looking like that at all. Obviously, it looks like it does now. And it, they, they've maintained that, you know, the dark blue and the stuff. But yeah, no, we were really, we were really happy about all of this. I think, um, you, you know, I think we sort of, you know, we, we thought that we were worth saving, which was a nice thing to, to have that mm. feeling about. Because at the time, lots of F1 teams like Arrows had fallen away and never regained, yeah? So clearly there was something here worth worth saving. And also, like you say, bringing a, bring a top flight driver on or someone with experience to help us out or help us build. And DC was exactly that. He was there. He knew he wasn't competing for races, but he was there to help us uh, the, with the direction. And we got some great people on board, um, you know, some really good engineers, um, you know, and really good aero people, Stefano Sordo and people like that. And, um, you know, and of course, then Christian came along later on, um, you know, young, vibrant. He had, he, had a, he had a really good intent and he had a really good vision and... He had the money behind him to bring people on, like like Adrian Rui, which um, which I never got to see actually. So I mm. I left pretty much. So I didn't stay around much. Um, yes. Due, due to the transition, a lot of us started to look elsewhere because of what happened to Arrows. A lot of us did start to to move elsewhere, and of course we we didn't have the all the rumor mill as, as easy as we do now with, you know, with what's happening with teams because, you know, the social media side of things just wasn't, wasn't about, but um, we, I'd started looking the direction of, of Renault. Of course they were pretty, pretty happening team at the time. And uh, um, yeah, they, they offered me a great position at Renault. So I jumped, I went to, I went to Renault F1 uh, pretty much um, sort of, you know, early 2005. Yeah, you did what yeah. Weber right, should have done. Can I yes. just say, <laughs> Weber should yeah. have followed you in that same decision in two thousand and five. Yeah, yeah, and that was great. Yeah, that was great. You'd come into this team that was well structured. They had some great people. You know, there's some really great uh, Pat Simmons. Um, What's Flavio had, like? Uh, Flavio, what an absolute legend. Um, yeah, just uh, just his presence. Flavio's presence was, it was like, it was always like you knew someone had walked in, walked into the garage. Okay. Mm. He was, he was larger than, he was an F1 character at the time, right? He was, I don't think even Toto would probably come close to him as he was back then. I think the only people that would probably come close to him were Max Mosley and, and, um, and, and, and Bernie. You know, mm. Then you had Flavio running up the rear. So I think to have someone like Flavio in your team, you know, you were, and of course, obviously we had Fernando and we had this great, so there wasn't, you know, the competition with Red Bull wasn't just on the track, it was off the track with, with creating all these new and wonderful drivers. And of course, one of our new and wonderful drivers at the time was, was Fernando. I mean, you know, Red Bull had Christian Clean and they never really made it. And, you know, it was only really when um, Vettel came along that they, they'd started to see the fruits of the labour. Because, mm. you know, Antonio, um, Vitantonio Liuzzi and, 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 and all those guys, Scott Speed and stuff like that, you know, they, they, none of them made it through that. Whereas Flavio... You know, and and probably the the, the might of, of various organisations behind him would would 
uh, nurture these drivers, you know, clearly taking 95% of their salary at the same time. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> would, so would, would, would get these guys, though, in front of the team managers, which just happened to mm. be himself, of course. <laughs> and, and uh, but, you know, clearly saw talent and, yeah. and, and credit where credit's due. Uh, and so it's the same for, it's the same for, um, uh, Helmut Marco and Christian, Christian Clean, you know, t- you know, you got to, you got to, you got to, you know, bruise a few apples before you find a sweet spot, you know. And uh, yeah. Yeah, so Renault, that, so Renault, this is two thousand and five. This is the R twenty five. That peak Fernando Alonso, yeah. the stunning team spirit livery that we saw him drive around Abu Dhabi a couple of years ago ahead of his return That's to right. now Alpine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Goodness, it was good to hear that motor spinning up so again, nice at least car. through the television. And it was such an easy car to work on. Mm. So easy to work on. Um, coming from where I've come from uh, and then working on the other, because I was full-time trackside uh, at yeah. Renault, so I was fully trackside. Uh, it was such an easy car to work on and so brutally fast. And uh, Giancarlo would bring the car back in half a decent state, whereas... Fernando would wring that car's neck and it would come back knackered, knackered, <laughs> but brutally fast. I think oh, yeah. China, China, and China 2005, we, you know, wrapped up to 20,000 RPM and did, you know, 1,000 horsepower and this, this thing just, just, just flew. I think it was, yeah. Yeah, it was Japan, actually. It was Japan for, my, for, for the sponsors. Right. For the, you know, and I think, we did, yeah, around the outside of, of, of um, of Schumacher at 130R with a thousand horsepower and twenty thousand RPM. It was a hell of a car. Oh. Great car. Yeah. Well, and then 2006, you've... mate. Honestly, in 2006. So we went down to a V8. Um, we we were testing the first test we did at Valencia, and it was uh, January. It was pretty much straight after Christmas, and, and he got out of the car after doing like. Three laps, so a, an out, you know, an out lap, a, a, a quick lap, and an in lap. And he got out of the car and before he unplugged his radio. He goes, "Yeah, we'll win the championship with that again." <laughs> that early, wow! And he said really? that to everyone on the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And was it was it hard for you to believe him, or were you are you the kind of person that you know you're waiting for the driver and the car to cross the finish line at the race that counts for the championship to 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 win or is it you can feel it as well from an engineering side where you can say yeah this yeah. is pretty special well you can feel it but you can also be shown it you know every race every race debrief you can see the separation with the other with the other teams and the other cars so yeah and you can actually almost see that at the first test right First two, t- first two tests. Unless you're going to bring a massive upgrade, you know where you're. Where you're, like for example, this year, where where Mercedes are like seven tenths behind. They said, yeah, but we're going to bring seven tenths to to Australia. Well, you're not going to need that. You're going to need thirteen tenths. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you yeah. are because everyone else would have also bumped exactly. up as well. So yeah. it's it's a case of keeping on top of that gap, and you can see that fairly early on. Um, in 2006, we could see that fairly early on, and Ferrari was obviously there, and uh, Williams was there as well, and uh, you, you could see that gap. And it was a night, nice, you know, it was a comfortable place to be, um, but you couldn't lift your foot off the throttle. Right? You couldn't not. You you had to keep it on, like we did do at Mercedes all the time. Um, what was it like? My, go Sorry, no, go on. 
No, it just makes and breaks people sometimes, you know. There's, there's yeah. certain pressures in, in, in this sport. And, uh, you know, if you, if, you are, if you are making it and you make it well, you've got to keep the pressure on. If you're not, then you, the pressure's, you know, to try and catch up. So there's never a happy medium at all in Formula One. Well, that's what I was going to ask because what is it like travelling around the world with that kind of pressure? From the engineering side, you mentioned earlier that, you know, if a car gets punted into the wall and you can see it on the mechanics' faces on the broadcast and Haas is the Mm -hmm. most recent example, Mick's engineers (laughs) were disappointed and hopeful that he was okay. Of course, he was out of the car a little later than we probably would have hoped. But for the pressure, not only are you disappearing between different time zones and travelling long distances and having to put things together, but individually as you start getting up the ranks in these Formula 1 teams, how how is that like to handle that kind of pressure? Uh, it's, It's incredibly hard. It really is incredibly hard. You have such a short space uh, to 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 rectify something, I mean, you know, look, I I, I uh, you know, after Renault and back, I think uh, after Renault, you know, moving back into into Mercedes, I was pretty much factory based, and I think the the pressure to deliver something to the race team that they could race, um, there's different tiers that you know we. we our customers are the race team, right? The the customers of the race team are the drivers and the fans, right? The entertainment and the sponsors. But so we've got, you know, back at the factory, we've got quite a lot of pressure building on uh, to us to ensure that we've got the upgrade for the next race, that we're going in the right direction with setup. So are we doing the seven poster and the driver in the loop and the simulators? Are we doing everything right there? Are we going in the right direction? Are we able to, um, you know, you you hear a lot about, you know, well, we're not too sure if we've gone in the right direction on setup, right? You hear a lot of that. You'll hear loads of that from from, from the Mercedes boys. Um, because to go in the wrong direction and keep going down that path, you, you, you know, you can get lost. You can really get lost and the car can be incredibly slow. And you're not, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not working the tires as well as they should be worked. But so so we need back at the factory to give a confidence level to the guys at the track to ensure that they're going to go in the right direction with setup. So our tools, our equipment, our knowledge, our experience uh, all needs to come together. And that's from a mechanical, from an aero perspective, from an electronics perspective, from a strategic perspective. Um, and, And we've got to feed all that in together. And we talked about silos before. You can't silo those independent departments they they all had to be as one and um once you get that beautiful parity as as being as one uh, you get the dominance that that mercedes had um you know with 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 everything so the pressure is is huge to deliver um what you say you're going to deliver and i i was sort of you know the head of um testing and, and development so my job was essentially to, you know, deliver lap time. Um, for, you know, where, whereas, you know, you look on the balance sheet of any company, their bottom line is profit, right? Cash and profit are the big things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Formula One, it's lap time, right? It's yep. delivering reduction in lap time. So it's a, it's a lot of pressure, mate. It's a lot of, a lot of pressure. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a pressure that, to be honest me, to be honest, took, took me out of Mercedes, took me out of Mercedes. You know, after doing it for 20 years, I don't mind yeah. telling, you know, people that, you know, it was ultimately the pressure that took me out of Mercedes. <laughs> certainly, certainly from, can only imagine. 
How do you deal with it for seven or eight years and then decide you've had enough? Because you obviously get used to working in those environments and, and the teams that are around you and the people around you must give you a hell of a lot of confidence to do what you do as well. You know, they empower you go out and drop those lap times. But what, what was the breaking point? What just what was the thing that made said, uh, we're done? I think, it, you know, this whole cost cap thing hit or would, would have hit Mercedes hard and yep. maybe you're seeing that now. Um, and there was a, there was definitely an imbalance, uh, of, of what we were trying to achieve within Mercedes, which meant you had to work basically twice as hard to maintain that, to maintain that level of pressure. And my, my own personal position was, you know, the, uh, you know, am I going to be able to keep up my, my living standards, my, my job enjoyment, uh, you know, the pressure of actually just trying to, to deliver to myself, right. To my own my own um, uh, standards, um, uh, I said, always said to myself, if, I, if I'm not delivering to my own standards, then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be uh, thinking about looking elsewhere. Um, but the, the pressure was huge. The pressure to maintain the, the, you know, we always talk about, everyone's talk, talking about sustainability. And, you know, mental health is as, is as, is as much as a, uh, you know, you whatever you do, you've got to be able to sustain it. And mm. if you can't sustain it, you've got to have a word with yourself, take a step back, and see what you can do. But the pressure is huge in Formula One. And but again, then again, the support is there, and, and it's up to you if you choose to use it or not to. Um, but uh, you know, it's a big family, and they do help, and they do understand when you do have to step back and and maybe you know pass the reins on. This is how this is how it works in Formula One. You know, the younger guys come through, and they have different ideas and better ideas and it takes takes some a level of attrition for for formula one to move on like everything mm. so yep. yeah yep. that's that was quite as simple as that and what would be happening in that organization right now as we speak having done two races going to melbourne and being significantly off the pace which we haven't seen for probably the better part yeah. of a decade yeah well i'll tell you what they'll be doing it, there's there's something which yeah a lot of people will disagree with me but after eight years of, of dominance, you, you would have had, say, eight years ago, you'd have had a graduate engineer come in, right? And in eight years' time, he'd have worked his way up through the ranks and he would be a junior engineer and then he'd be a senior engineer and now he'd be a head of department. So he's now the head of department, never knowing what it's like to lose, mm. yeah. right? So what happens psychologically or you know, or resourcefully, or what happens when you're losing? And I tell you what they'll be doing right now is trying to work that out. That they, they, they are, for me, I, I imagine they're trying to figure out, and they they will be brilliant at this. They will be absolutely brilliant at this because when 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 there's something not quite right, um, and 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 they have to sort of reevaluate because they've approached something that they've never felt or seen before. And and you can see this by the way that Mercedes went from. Um, rule change to rule change, right? And it was very, very different for them, and they adapted. And uh, what you're seeing now is maybe a group of uh, young engineers that have never really known what it's like to lose. Oh, what do we do? What do we do now? What, I can imagine there's a thousand people there. Let's say maybe 40, 50 percent of the team have always won, right? I think that's 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 probably you know probably. 
uh, you know, right there. So, so they'll, they, they'll just have to learn to adapt and they will do it super fast and they'll do it to, to the letter. And, and this is where the pressure does, does start to build up in some people, but, um, they will do it and they'll do it well. And you'll see that, you, yeah, they won't, they won't be, uh, they were, I mean, they, you know, they've got, they've got some issues, um, with regards to porpoising in the aero. Um, and, but my God, they'll, they'll quickly turn it around. We'll get, we'll come back to Mercedes. Cause I think we've got some specific questions about that a little later on. I just want to get your thoughts though, on 2009 in Renault, a fresh faced mm. Roman Grosjean comes into the car. What, what was he like to, to work with? Because obviously I think the, the world of Formula One and now racing, especially in the U S love Roman. Yeah. Roman was great. He was, um, I, so he was our test driver for many years before that, right? So I think he came along about 2007, 2008, and he was doing GP2. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting for Romat. I think we almost, I think Flavio almost plucked him out of GP2 too early. And I think that's true because after 2009, I think he went back to GP2 mm. and then he won the championship. And then we saw him come back into F1. So... I think I think there was a case of you know we 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 he was definitely hungry and he was definitely a, a talented a real talent a serious talent um, but he um, uh, but I think he just needed to do a few more laps in a in a GP two car first and trying to uh, you know he was, he, he was costly I think there was a few shunts there was a good few shunts. Um, but he, as a test driver, he was brilliant. He was really, really good. Uh, but yeah, he was, there was there was a there was a few there was a few crashes involved. I think uh, uh, two thousand nine. Yeah, so that was yeah. So he replaced um, uh, uh, Nelson PK, I think. Yeah, because two thousand eight is when they had the you know the the, yes. the very um, calculated ordeal in Singapore. Yes, two thousand nine. Calculated ordeal. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a funny Ferrari story. Would put it, wasn't it? Yeah, go. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, that was a weird one actually, and I don't mind telling you about this. I, I was, I was actually at Spa two thousand nine, and I was a, I was a guest engineer, so I wasn't racing at the time. I was on the test team, um, and I, I don't know, got out to have a chat you know, take a whiz. I don't know what I'd done, but I came back into the, the garage and I was looking for the, the chief mechanic and all the mechanics were there working on the, on the cars. And I was looking for, I was looking for Siebes, Paul Seabee. Paul Seabee, interestingly, is the guy on flames in the iconic picture of the Benetton fire on, uh, really? on really? the car. Yeah. So you see yeah. the, you see the, the, like this turn in picture of this guy and he's got his goggles yeah. on, right? That's yeah. that's Paul Seabe. So he's a chief mechanic. Great bloke. Wow. So I walked to the garage and I was looking for Paul Seabe. And I was like, I was looking around, I couldn't find him. Sort of, you know, where where's I thought, well, I'll look for the engineers. And I couldn't find the engineers. So I went into the went into the truck because it was spa. We had we had the trucks, we had the engineering trucks, and I went into it. was like a ghost town. Now normally you'd have Pat Simmons probably having a bit of a snooze in the corner. No, not at all. Normally you'd find Pat Sim and you'd find everyone there. You'd find everyone there. And um, and I just sort of said, there's no one here at all, 
And I went into the garage. I said, there's no, it's just us lot. It's just the mechanics and the electronics boys. And, uh, well, there's got to be someone. So, I just, you know. so we all had a bit of a look around and see what was going on. No engineers at all. And then, yeah, that's when we found out there'd been summons to the um, to race control to speak with the FIA about, because at that time, I think uh, Nelson had just let, let, you know, blown the whistle on what happened. So there was an investigation. I think they pulled everyone in at the same time to stop any sort well, of, you know, cross-correlation on, on, yeah. But that was interesting. Yeah, that was interesting. But Roma, going back to Roman, yeah, he was a solid driver, mate. I mean, we... Yeah. I think there was there's mutterings of, you know, race winning performance. And I think when you saw him go back to Lotus, mm, he was yeah. definitely a changed, changed man. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great Give him the right tools. I want to talk yeah. now about your, your next team because you sort of seem to have ascended to a championship winning team. And then, of course, like anyone, Renault had their, their struggles after five and six. But you went towards the back of the grid with Marussia, which would have been obviously very interesting and some very obvious noticeable changes. But I'm more curious as to the subtle changes. So from your end and where you came from, from a championship winning team, going back towards the back, what was it like? What was the attitude difference between those two organisations? Right. There were, firstly, there was no subtle changes. I mean, you've gone, <laughs> you've gone from a, a, manufacturer, a manufacturer team to this, this, no word of a lie. This is exactly how it was. The, the test team had all been disbanded in, in 2009. I'd be, I think I'd been put on the show car and that was, that was rubbish. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be trackside and racing. Mm. Anyway, the, the chief engineer left and we sort of said, you know, where are you going? He goes, well, there's rumors are that there's going to be a new team and I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to try and get first in the queue. And I said, right, okay, I'm, I'm going to have some of that. And long story short, I ended up in front of uh, Johnny Booth and Graham Loudon and, and Dave O'Neill. And this was Manor Grand Prix, which became Virgin. And Virgin Racing, we literally sat around, there was 11 of us, Rich Lane, who's an engineer, uh, Mark Hutchison, Dave Greenwood, and a couple of other names that are still around to this day, with blank pieces of paper, 11 of us saying, right, what do we need? We need to build an F1 team. What, what do we need? We literally had with a budget, nothing. of course. We, we, we had we had well, we had to put together a budget. Basically, that's what it was. Mm. But at the same time, we had to think. Well, what do we need? What have we got? What do we need? And we've got. We're sat in an old F3 building. And F3 is vastly different to F1 in terms of mm. you know in terms of. Uh, you know, it's like going from a 50 to a 1200 on a motorbike, you know, there's, there's just, there's just no, there's just no gap. There's, there's no gap big enough to, to explain, but, uh, and we're sat in this F3 team all around a table thinking, right, what do we need? What do we do? And I think we ended up going out to Bista and we met with, we met with, uh, Mark Hurd and Nick Worth and, you know, these were the people that were going to help us design this. <laughs> Car. Car, yeah. There's a <laughs> level of cynicism when you're looking back at it. Just just call it a car. Jesus Christ. Really sleepless nights and that thing. Uh, I think the designer of that car, I think he's got half a dozen cars in the top 10 worst F1 designed cars in, in the world. <laughs> Good. Um, oh. 
what a piece of shit. So they had, they had, this, they had this amazing idea not to use a wind tunnel. And Nick, oh, if you're listening to this, then, you know, that clearly wasn't an amazing idea. Um, so anyway, we, we sat around the table. We, we came up with what we needed. Um, there was there was some great there were some great people there. Uh, Joe Burkett and we, we designed all the electronics. We got in touch with McLaren Applied, and we did the deal to get all the electronics on the car. And Joe and I, he did the garage. I did the car electronics and architecture. And another guy called Gordon Pocock. And we just we just basically did what we had to do within seven months to get the car on the grid in in uh, in Australia. And um, we didn't get it on the grid in Australia. We actually started from the pit lane, I think I remember. Um, uh, you know, along with two other teams, one of which sort of fell away. Uh, yeah, two other teams, well, three other teams, one of which fell away. And the, the other one was HRT and yep. and Lotus Racing. And we, uh, yeah, Christ. I mean, that was absolutely a uh, something I will never, ever forget. Building that car... Um, I mean, Scratch. we did, I think Bahrain, Bahrain test, we did a 60 hour day. Oh. There's three of us that did a 60 hour day. We oh. were sleeping in tire blankets behind the racks, right? We were sleeping Goodness. in tire blankets. We were sleeping on the truck. Next thing you know, the FIA bring in a curfew because of, they didn't see people passing out of the, of the barriers. And that's because of uh, Virgin and, and, uh, and Lotus racing. Wow. Um, you know, Cosworth oil seals would be peeing out everywhere. And oh, it's just, you know, it was, it was a great concept. It was a really great concept. But I think the biggest problem with, well, there's lots of problems with the Virgin car, but um, the one, well, there was many reasons why we didn't, A, complete a race because Nick didn't uh, make the car tank big enough. Uh, but we had some serious... <laughs> Hydraulics problems. I'll tell you a story. I was in my garden. Make the tank. <laughs> I was, I was in my garden, and I get this call. Rich. Oh, hello, Nick. Is Nick Worth? How's it going? He goes, Yeah, yeah, good, good. I said, What's up? And he said, Well, we got a bit of a problem. So, what's that, mate? He says, Well, we need to make the tank bigger in the car. <laughs> Well, what are you going to do that? You're going to have to just split the car off, and, and yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the back bulkhead off, and we're going to we're going to shim a hundred mil, uh, uh, you know, of, of car. We're going to we're going to extend the car, right? We're going to call it the limo. Oh, <laughs> well, but, but then he said to me, he says, "But what about the loom?" I said, "Well, what about the loom?" He goes, "What can you do there?" He goes, and I said to him, "Hold on a minute, mate. Let me see if my magic loom extenders are working, shall I?" <laughs> and, just cut it, put some connectors on, and see how you go. I said, "Mate, no, no, we're going to have to, we're going to have to make a whole new, whole new chassis, a whole new chassis loom, a whole new chassis." But wow. yeah, and it's almost like starting again. That's heartbreaking, but um, yeah. needs must. And whoever miscalculated that, yeah, <laughs> I don't even so, want to know. Sounds like um, an episode of our podcast. But this, is how, this is, but this is all the stuff in the background that people don't realise. You know, you're in your garden, yeah. you get a call from Nickworth, I need to make the car bigger. Oh, shit. Phone down. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that, was, that was good fun. But, you know, these are the challenges we had. We had loads of hydraulics problems. We had loads of aero problems. The car balance was, was not good. Um, the reliability 
in electronics and systems, because I was doing that at the time, was, was perfect. I mean, going back to McLaren Applied and, and McLaren Electronic Systems at the time, we, you know, it was the only thing that we could sort of count on if we weren't dragging it on the ground because we'd been, you know, we'd hit the barriers or... Um, I mean, I can even remember an ECU being dragged along the ground and, and wearing a hole through it and coming back and still working, you know, bullet. Wow. Yeah, it was bonkers. It was bonkers. But but that 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 whole year, I mean, it was a short year because, you know, I, tried, I finished in China at Marussia in the second year in 2011. And, uh, yeah, that was it for me. That was a... Something I'm glad I did, and I met some amazing people, and we got stuck in China because of the, the the ash cloud and everything else. And there was just so many different aspects to that year. I think there was an uprising in Bahrain as well, so there was all this worry and stuff going on with the, the Arab Spring. And um, but you know, it was a challenging couple of years, and sort of you know makes makes you the, certainly makes you the person you are today. Well, it certainly builds that adversity, is doesn't it? Because you you have to be stronger against that, which probably lent it very well to Mercedes joining the the very beginning yeah. of the turbo hybrid era. Yeah, because you you had this team of people who literally from from the Honda days had everything handed to them. You know, this team had all the fantastic machinery, fully calibrated equipment. Um, you know, seven post rigs, simulators, wind tunnels. I mean, from Virgin, we had sandbags. We, we were measuring, we were measuring wing deflection using sandbags, and we were sat outside or, or, or dead weights. Yeah, you go into Mercedes and you put this front wing on this rig, and these hydraulic actuators come down and they settle it, and then they go up again, and and they, you know, it's all computer controlled and all controlled beautifully, and you know, and there's us like lugging sandbags on the top of wings, like, yeah, yeah, measuring, measuring it with a ruler or your eye, you know, yeah, yeah, little pass, shit, send it, you know, well, we're on the uh, stories of being on the bridge at the race, stories being on the, you know, when you go to the bridge and the scrutineering bridge, they have this sort of, you know, these gadgets that fit on the car to make sure you're within the box. And then, and there's me and the Dagman Steve uh, no, shaving, shaving you know, bits <laughs> off the car to make it fit. Oh, um, good. And you go to, you go, and you, you come out of there and you see all the other cars lined up, ready to go into the bridge. And these cars are beautiful. And I remember seeing the Mercedes just, you know, everything fit perfectly and, we it, we called the we call it the F one mosquito. You know when you heard the the grinders coming out in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know you're grinding away stuff to make it fit, and all the other teams have got the lights off and down the bar. You know, um, you know. So so you know what it's like on both sides of the fence. You're at the mm. back of the grid. You're at the you know you're at the budget end. You're doing whatever it can it takes to survive. And then all of a sudden you come right to the very front of the grid and you start to realise not a lot of many people in that team have had that experience. Mm. So that's an interesting thing where you have to not always really think for yourself because usually there's a process or a person doing it for you. And that can be a little bit frustrating, but at the same time you've just got to adapt. Well, the great thing about people who work in F1, they do adapt very quickly. It sort of seems like that, doesn't it, with Haas at the moment. They've come from having a woeful couple of years, to to use a, a recent example, and now suddenly, you know, Kevin 
after not even training to be in a Formula One car, comes in, puts it P5 first race back. And yeah, they've had a couple of issues in the, in the previous race. But they're certainly, well, they're probably certainly faster than the McLaren this year. And we never thought we'd be saying that, you know, even six months ago, even probably six weeks ago. So there, is it maybe more interesting from a team point of view and what Gunter's leading now in terms of this attitude where he's got more people that, know how good it tastes being towards this front end and that they're going to work harder to stay there? Yeah, I, I think they were, this is the first year they were really allowed to do a lot of their own aero on that car, right? So that's that's one thing. The other thing is that power unit is tremendous, right? We're talking some serious power over the Mercedes. You can see, you can see all the Ferrari engine cars at the top and all the Mercedes engines at the bottom. So there's a huge disparity there. And that means that, you know, on, on the super fast, long straights, uh, the power circuits, you are going to see the Haas up there. But I think from an aerodynamic perspective, we've yet to see whether or not what they've put in place is going to complement that power unit, right? So where Haas is a good little solid team, I think it's the same team, but they've now got the drive to to get them out. And it's the same as what Williams were, you know, um, you know, if you've got a good power unit behind you and a good, uh, and a good, uh, a good team of people to, uh, to combine that with some good aero, I think you, you're onto a bit of a winner. Uh, and, and fingers crossed that is the, that is the thing for Haas. Um, uh, do the drivers have an influence? It'd be interesting to put Remain back in there. Definitely. Mm. Um, I think he would have got a top five as well. I really do. Yeah. Uh, and I said at the start of the year after the first test, most, most, you know, Ferrari gave up two years ago and worked on their powertrain and aero and Haas did the same and just had to save face for a couple of years. Um, you know, but I think Gene is spending a lot of money. He's, he's put a lot more money into the company, uh, of his own money. Um, despite the, the the recent problems with sponsors, um, it just means that he's just going to have to foot the bill himself for a little bit longer. But if the results prove good for him, then it's a good, solid investment. Because the equivalent, advertising, the equivalent advertising budget with Netflix and, and, and media like this is, is mm. I mean, it's huge, absolutely mm. huge. I think, don't quote me on this, but I think, Mercedes equivalent advertising budget was something in the order of three billion US dollars. That's what they would have to spend to get the the you know the 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 um, you know the, the the coverage that they get. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting. Yes, it's, it's it's a very interesting time looking at them. But I, I want to talk a little bit about Mercedes before we then talk about, of course, McLaren applied and then the twenty twenty two car. For for you, obviously favorite moments would probably be winning world championships, but to see the ascension of that team and putting it all together in, in 2014 must've been pretty special as well. As you said, you've mm-hmm. got experience from every side of the fence, including sleeping in tire blankets and what 60 hour yeah. days look like. And, and of course now, you know, getting it right. What was it like working with Toto? Because it seems that the culture there is very absolutely the winning is the most important thing. And I think he signed off Drive to Survive in the, in the latest season with everyone has a targets on their back for 2022. Did you feel that sort of trickle down to the R&D space as well? And would the juniors and graduates feel the same? 
Yeah, I think uh, everyone at Mercedes was was um, we're, we're actually treated on the same footing, you know, in terms of their uh, empowerment. They were all empowered, and this was the this was the thing that that really that really started to change in in thirteen fourteen is this this level of empowerment that you you were given to to produce the best you possibly can be, and then they started to create an intent. Right. So what was the intent? The intent was to win a world championship. And then Aldo Costa said, well, why win one world championship? Because he was allowed to speak out. He, he said, well, why don't we why don't we win multiple world championships? Let's make our intent that we win multiple world championships. And Toto went, yeah, that sounds good. And that was the overall company intent. So everyone knew what we had to work towards. And I've never been in a Formula One team that had an intent. Now, we all know the intent is to win races or compete, but is that really the intent of Haas? I'm, I'm hoping so. But realistically, what that intent gave us was a real level of hope that we actually think we could do this. And of course, then each department or each area had their own intent, right? You know, if you were an aero to make the best possible, most efficient aerodynamic, you know, on-time delivery, under budget, blah, blah, blah. And with R&D, it was the same. And with mechanical design, it was the same. And with the design office or with software group or with strategy group. So we all had our own little intents. And under that intent, we had to ensure that we gave results in terms of, um, uh, you know, recorded um, controls and evidence, right? So we started making processes to ensure that we would end up at that intent. And then, you know, below that, processes? Do we have the right people to undertake those processes? Do we have the right um, tools to 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 um, to make those processes work? Well, if we don't, what do we need to buy them? And that's do, you know, and then we started to break it down. And of course, all of a sudden we came up with this, it sounds like a pyramid scheme, but it's not. <laughs> it was a pyramid. And this pyramid had a, a, a you know, a level of quality to it all the way down these, um, these these tiers and all of which led to the same intent and when you put them all together they all led to the same intent of winning multiple world championships sure enough it it bloody happened and whereas i came from quite a skeptical background you know listening to aldo say yeah well we're multiple world championships i said well the most you'll probably win is two right you'll probably win two so what they had to do is convince me to think differently yeah. Because two years not good enough, you know. You know, I've been I've been flitting around from team to team, maybe, you know, two years, three years, four years, five years, something like that. This was a different behavior. This was a different level of uh, uh of intent. And they empowered me to do what I wanted to do in R and D. And I was able to build that department up from pretty much a scrappy old Honda leftovers uh and we assembled a team of people and a bunch of processes and we delivered we delivered every day on time and of course everyone else was doing that and everyone else and aero were doing that and do were doing that and then sure enough everyone's doing it so it was about intent it was about the creation of an intent and uh being empowered all right we had a shitload of cash right we had a load of money (laughs) we had a load of money um, but that was rationed. We would have to go and ask for it and build a business case for it. 
we would have to go and ask for capital expenditure or operational expenditure, so on and so forth. We had a brilliant operation, chief operations uh, in, in in Rob, and um, he he um, he you know he kept you know he's an MBA and you know he knew all about the business and he was just a you know such a fair guy and of course he worked well with Toto and then the designers John Owen was just John Owen's just a genius. Um, I'm not too sure how he got the side pods through. But you know he's he is, a, he, is, he is an absolute genius. Well, I call them the hide pods. Hide pods, yes. Hide pods. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the genius that is John Owen and the team that he's built around him, um, yeah, deliver, deliver all the time. Before we move on to talking about McLaren Applied and the 2022 car, I'd like to get your favourite memory from your time trackside with Formula One. Oh, I, it's quite funny. I think, uh, I, I, yeah, I do have, I do have one. I was sat on the pit wall, and I was sat next to the composite technician because he was doing the timing. He was pressing the buttons on the timer as they came past, right? They would be t- pressing the buttons on the timer, and, um, and that sat next to me was Nelson PK Senior. Right, because his son was testing in the in the car, and so so I was sort of sat so so that, so I think his name was Jamie. You sat there, and then Nelson was sat next to him, and I was sat next to Nelson, and then Adam Carter, who was running him, I was I was helping Adam, and he, I think the the young the young chap at the end there turned to Nelson PK Senior and said, "Oh, what are you what are you doing here?" What, who, who are you? Who are you? Uh, who are you with? And he goes, oh, my son in there, Nelson Nelson Pico Junior. And he goes, oh, he goes, you must be a very proud dad. You must be a very <laughs> proud dad. He <laughs> had no idea who this guy was. You know, three-time world champion sat next to him. You know, he had so no idea because he was so young. He didn't. He didn't even know who these people were. And I can just remember uh, uh, Adam, uh, myself, and Adam Carter just, just. Just breaking down, just just crying on that. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's there, no there, there are loads of there are loads of little things. I guess you had to be there for that one. But there are there are loads. There are loads. I remember, yeah, again with Adam Carter, we called him Adam Carter, the fire starter, because uh, I think he he was a young engineer and he he was on the radio to Fernando, and it was at Hareth, and the car was at the exit of the pit lane. And he was trying to get him a space in the traffic to go out. They're saying, "Please hold, please hold, saying, please hold." By this point, Fernando was out of the car and running out the pit lane because the car was on fire. You know, <laughs> and there's little things like that, like saying, you know, all the engineers on the on the pit on the pit wall going, "Right, okay, we're not too sure on the weather. I'm looking at the radar at the moment. I'm, all I'm doing is looking behind me." Going, you don't need you don't you know the stuff the stuff like that there's common sense and stuff going on uh oh, you know uh you know uh, johnny booth uh and uh richard richard branson all handing us you know towels and 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 water as we ran back from the pit lane in malaysia and you know, he was he was such a nice bloke um and Johnny Booth there helping with put stickers on. There's just so much 
to 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 go through in my in my career. I think winning winning the winning the two thousand six championship was great. Um, winning the seventeen championship was great because of this massive transition in car design, huge. Mm. Uh, and the seventeen car was just brutal. You know, it was just a beast. Was and Lewis was. Oh, it was, mate, it was awesome. It was absolutely yeah. awesome. 18, you know, they, they're just brutal cars and just such a joy to work with. That's such a fantastic team. Now, you're at McLaren Applied. The McLaren Applied Technologies have, has just recently broken away from McLaren as a, as a racing group and the auto group. Yeah. And you recently joined September last year uh, and you're the motorsport or the head of motorsport accounts for the business. Now, probably, yeah. and you mentioned this already, not many people would know that McLaren Applied supply a hell of a lot of stuff to yeah. the paddock of Formula One. What is the role yeah. then of McLaren Applied and what's your current role uh, at the business? So, so McLaren Applied, they they have always, you know, since 2000, I think they tendered for it in 2005. And I think it was offered, I think 2007 was the first year of a standard ECU. Anyway, basically it came about because a lot of people were cheated. You know, people were hiding stuff within their ECUs that the FIA could not, you know. Yep figure out what was going on, right? You saw the starts of Fernando and, and, and Giancarlo. They were blisteringly fast starts. Um, there was bike point learning going on. There was all sorts of trick stuff happening. And the FIA, oh, yeah. I mean, the FIA had yeah. no idea how to handle this except for just tender for a standard ECU. And, of course, McLaren already, McLaren uh, Electronics, or Tag Electronics, were already supplying to, like, IndyCar. And that wedge shape, I don't know if you've ever seen an ECU in a, in a, in a Formula 1 car, but there's a wedge shape. And that wedge mm-hmm. shape was designed to fit in the keel of an Indy car. So that's why it's that shape. Wow. Yeah, so so it became an iconic shape, so they kept it. But So they applied for it and they won the tender. And I think it was the ECU and then a few little satellite things, including the dash display and the rain light and a few and, – and these and these this technology that sat on the, on the upright – and took all the, the wheel speeds and everything into one box and then shoved it into the ECU. So they won this. And um, the reliability was such that uh, it just kept on perpetuating. I mean, I don't think anyone could really... I mean, I think Morelli tried to sort of, you know, hitch up and a few others tried to hitch up. But sure enough, the, the infrastructure that the teams had put into their own rigs and systems that married into the car or would replicate the car meant that, that, you know, if someone else won the tender, maybe they'd have to do all that as well. So it'd be a big cost option. But I think what helped McLaren was McLaren applied was just the rely, just the sheer reliability and the, and the power of this, this, this little gadget. Um, and the fact that um, the FAA were quite easily, um, or are quite easily able to to interrogate um, such a system from a single mm. point. So they've kept it. I mean, they 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 won the tender again in 2020, and the new tender is um, one of the reasons why why I'm McLaren applied. The new tender has just happened, so we've just submitted the tender. I think it's gone to the teams for 
for review, and then it's up to the FIA to 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 sign that off. Uh, fingers crossed, McLaren applied get it. I think I think we we worked out a stat the other day. Um, yeah, nearly 1.6 million kilometers without a failure in a race. Wow. I couldn't tell you if there's a failure in a test or on a track somewhere. But, you know, the, the I mean, there's been various iterations, but yeah, I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a beast. I think there's only, I think there's probably only the Zytec Formula 3000 engines that come any close to that. But um, yeah, so look, it's a really good package and it comes with various, you know, easy to use software. And, and most of the people in the paddock know how to use the software. And then we, McLaren also have a presence. McLaren Applied have a ple- presence in the soft, in the, the pit lane with with a with a bunch of familiar faces that go out and support as well. So it's the full package, really. Um, you know, and I think with the brand of McLaren behind us and uh, and our own our own budget now, because we've sort of broken away from the McLaren Group and become McLaren Applied, we've got our own investment. Um, but still having this iconic brand behind us really helps us, you know, um, move move forward. And um, I'm quite proud of the fact that. Uh, I'm, I'm working for these people now because I, I was always a customer. And the interesting thing during the the, the interview was that, I br- again, I brought that up. I'm, I, I've, I've been a customer for you know, 15 years. So it was interesting for them to sort of ask me my own opinions on what, what I think we need to do, not just for the tender, but for all the other stuff we supply, Formula One and IndyCar. You, I know what it's like on the other side of the fence. So what am I expecting? You know, how should we run this business? Uh, and that was a very flattering thing for them to ask me. So they put me in charge of um, the accounts. So uh, all the F1 teams. So the F1 teams now um, will come to me for any new uh, potential developments. Um, and then I filter that down to the engineering teams and so so on and so forth. I'm like their one-stop shop. If they need anything, even if it's a, a sale, even I'm not in sales, but... You know, I'll know the sales team or the business development team, and um, I can chair certain meetings where they use a common problem. They have a common problem, um, or I can I can pass on certain successes because the teams are very good at doing that. They do like sort of saying, "Look, we had a really good weekend. Thanks for your team at the tractor from helping us out," and, and I like to pass that on as well. So I look after all the F one accounts and. I look after all the dis- distributors as well. We, we've got a couple of distributors around the world. So um, I look after those guys as well to help other people in other countries. Um, and of course, we've had a real tough couple of years with, with pandemic and COVID and the shortage of chips supply, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the microprocessors and things like that. Um, so that's been a real challenge to, to you know, dig ourselves out with a good strategy. And, and we, you know, we're, we're heading in that direction. Yeah. Well, I think it's now worth talking about the 2022 Formula One car. Campy Mm. is very excited to to get your insight. Campy? Oh, where do I start? I want to go, I want to ask all the questions about what's wrong with the McLaren. We're obviously (laughs) Aussies and Danny Ricciardo. We got a huge bias here. Look, what uh, I'll preface the question Red Bull. You know, their design philosophy has always been a massive rake, you know. Yeah, huge uh, rake. Whereas yeah. Mercedes yep. has typically been, hey, we're going to go not as big a rate. There's also a really small one, but we're going to have a longer chassis and a longer wheelbase. Um, what is McLaren's, you know, first question, what's McLaren's design philosophy around making cars go fast? Yeah, 
if you could put it in a simplistic term. Like yeah, that. I, you know what? I think I, I, taking my McLaren applied hat off there, really, and only looking at it from an, an external perspective, because we we don't really yeah. have too much to do with the race team. But yeah. I, I think all they wanted to do this year was sort out their aerodynamic issues okay so they're they they're yeah. their correlation with the wind tunnel and I, I i think what's happened looking at it from the outside in is that they have really struggled with you know um the new regulations around the the wheels right so the so yep. the brake cooling and the hubs and uh, and, and the, the discs and things like that and i think it's the fronts that are causing them quite a bit of problems um I think every every team's de- design philosophy is to ensure that you know they have the reduced frontal area, you know, and yeah. and um, certainly with these new regulations, I guess their intent would be to yeah. ensure that they can expose every possible um, you know uh, um, marginal gain they can do. I don't think McLaren have done that yet. I don't think they've been able to bring an upgrade until they've sorted out their, I, I would say, maybe Lack the front. The, yeah, the la- they've, got, they've got a bit of a problem with, with cooling, I think, and they've got a bit of a problem then. If they, obviously, if they do start to change the, 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 you know, the upright cooling and the brake cooling, then you start talking about front wing change and you start talking about, you know, there's, there's big changes that, that, that happen to, yep. to, 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 to that, that impact everything going further, further back. So, I've got a suspicion they're, they've got a they've got an issue around the the, the front wheels. Yeah, yeah. And, we'll and and moving forward, like looking towards the future, I've been a bit of a component about F one as a whole and as a sport. It's in a bit of a limbo area, in my opinion. And, yeah. and when I say that, I mean we're, we're losing a bit of identity with with the world wanting to go green technologies, cars going, you know, fully electric. We've seen what electric motorsport has looked like with a few yeah. of the categories with Extreme E and Formula E. And I'm not a fan of those things. Yeah. But it seems to me that inevitable it's inevitable that Formula One has to go fully electric at some point, you know, but I, I'm i just a fan sitting here at home. Where do you think the future see, of the sport lies? Yeah, see, I don't think it's going to – yeah, so I've said this before in another interview with Scarbs on YouTube, and I, I've i said this before. I don't think it will go fully electric. I don't think uh, this will happen because I think what, what will happen is that we will find alternative, say, greener fuels, i.e. biofuels, uh, we could even have the introduction of hydrogen technology in the next, you know, five years. Yep. Um, we will maintain a level of electrification, but I, I can't see it going more than 50-50. I really can't. And I, and I think that's going to be the same for 2030. When they, when they announce the new engine rules in 2026, we still have an internal combustion engine. So I think you're looking at 50-50. You've got to also remember that, you know, we've, we've got to be road relevant. Um, the majority of vehicles yep. will not be electric uh, in, you know, 2025 onwards. Porsche have clearly uh, have made a, a clear intent uh, to, to, to uh, maintain the combustion engine. Um, 
uh, along with along with I think I'm not sure if Volkswagen Audi Group uh, you know follow that 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 yep. um, that thought, but Porsche have come out quite clearly and said you know um, there is there is still quite a lot um, uh, around the the around the internal combustion because the efficiency is so high. Uh, over fifty yeah. percent efficient now in a Formula One engine, um, um, so it's I mega. think it is absolutely mega when you think of a you know a, you know road. I don't know what I don't know how I can measure an efficiency of an electric motor in terms of if you if you just think about all the everything it takes from ground from digging the stuff out the ground to get it into a battery and making a motor. I, I don't I, I I don't know where I don't know where we'd be on that, yep. but. I know it's a lot harder than it is to 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 you know take oil out. I know it's easier to take oil out of the ground, but you know. But I think biofuels definitely internal combustion definitely fifty percent electric. Yeah, I think that's that's the way we're going to go. And I think you can rest your mind, at, you know, with ease that I think that will be the way the way to go. Yeah. So there's still going to be noisy. I still want some throwback races, maybe. Possibly get some old screaming V10s back and that travel across. <laughs> you never the, know. I mean, honestly, the sound that across the city. Biofuels happen. If green fuels happen, but you know, the the, the uh, um, it's 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 an interesting one. But I definitely think fifty fifty. And, and of course, you know, to 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 drop in, you know, McLaren applied. They, it's not just biofuels. There's there's uh, efficient electric drives like. Um, um, uh, silicon carbide inverters that we've got, 800 volt silicon carbide inverter, and you couple that with a 350 kilowatt motor, um, it still allows you to have an IC engine. It still allows you yeah. to, to um, you know, still generate that power in a very efficient way uh, with smaller, lighter, faster batteries and uh, allow you to have an IC engine at the same time. So so it, it will, I don't think it will replace it, but I think each each part of it will technically get smaller but have the same amount of power so overall it becomes more efficient and still allows you to have an ic engine with maybe a biofuel so yeah well richard i think that is a a positive note to finish this episode on for all of the internal combustion fans that it probably will continue mate thank you so much for spending time with us we'd love to catch up with you again maybe next year after we have a full-fledged 2022 regulation season and just to see what the the guys at mercedes end up doing but maybe we wish you all the best with mclaren applied thanks so much for coming on thanks very much guys cheers Well, a massive thank you to both Richard Saxby and to McLaren Applied for arranging that chat. Richard, it was honestly an absolute pleasure to hear your stories. I can't wait to catch up with you in person soon and hear so many more of them. And if you've enjoyed this conversation with Richard, please consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review. We've got some amazing people coming up on the show over the next 12 months that I can't wait to chat to and then to share this conversation with you. But it is time to say goodbye. We'll see you next time on Lakeside Drive's F1 Podcast.